this episode, I wanted to understand what Africana studies was all about. Is it the same as African studies, African American studies, black studies, Africology? Is the discipline about history or sociology, philosophy? Is it Pan Africanism? I needed to understand and I needed to find an expert for that. Enter Dr. Karen J. Kayita Carroll. Dr. Carroll is a faculty member in the Department of Black and Latino Studies at Baruch College. He has taught at the State University of New York, Seton Hall University, Montclair State University, and other colleges in the New York and New Jersey area. His teaching and research interests investigate and advance African-centered theory and methodology with an emphasis on social and psychological theory. Get ready for some deep learning. Dr. Carroll, welcome and thank you. You're welcome. What is Africana Studies? I like to define Africana Studies as it relates to, to three ideas or three concepts. The first being subject matter, the second being perspective, and the third being the function or the goal. So any definition for Africana Studies, I would argue, should include those three, those three components. So for me, I would define Africana Studies as the study of Africana people, life, history, and culture from their own perspective with the intended goal of liberating and transforming their conditions along with transforming humanity. Africana studies as an academic discipline began in the 1960s, specifically 1968 at San Francisco State College with the demand for what was at that point called a Black Studies Department from the late 1960s up until the 90s, Black Studies has gone through a variety of different names. So it's been called Black Studies. It's been called Afro-American Studies. It's been called Pan-African Studies. It's been called Africology. It's been called, obviously, Africana Studies. But I argue that Africana Studies encompasses that whole development beginning in 1968 and coming to the present moment. And I think sometimes when people hear Africana studies, they automatically think African studies, but African studies is a totally separate entity that is or can be a part of Africana studies, but the history of Africana studies is prior to 1968, and that history is connected to European study of Africa. So when we study Africana, when we study African studies in the context of Africana studies, we're doing it with that whole notion of subject matter, perspective, and goal. But when you look at African studies, they might have had a subject matter that dealt with African people. They might have had a subject matter that um, they might have had a, well, I mean, they had a perspective. It wasn't an African perspective. It was a European Eurocentric perspective. And the goal was not to liberate, transform the conditions of African folks. It was to control them via their resources, so forth and so on. So I argue that we need to be clear on what Africana studies is versus what African studies is. I think one example of this distinction between Africana studies and African studies is the development of an organization known as the African Heritage Studies Association. That began by scholars such as John Henry Clark, who saw what African studies was doing and said, we don't want to be a part of that because there's already an organization known as the African Studies Association. They said, no, nah, we're not trying to deal with that. We're doing our own thing. And the work of Africana Studies takes place within organizations such as the African Heritage Studies Association. So 
I understand the evolution of it from, say, Black Studies, Africana Studies. Mm-hmm. But through different colleges and departments, I still see different naming convention. Isn't that problematic? It's a part of that evolution that I just spoke of, but it also is connected to people being stuck to certain names. You can look at San Francisco State University now. They recently, I don't remember exactly what year, but they recently changed their department name to Africana Studies. But prior to this, they were always Black Studies. So a lot of the departments that you see with labels such as Black, African American, even African Diaspora, all those, those are folks who have decided not to change their name to Africana. Now, I think that there is a reason why people are not changing their name. And one reason that I know is that some departments that historically are doing Africana studies or should be doing Africana studies don't deal with the diaspora nor the continent at the, at the rate that they should. So some of these African-American studies departments, some of these black studies departments, they are U.S. centered. You know, I went to Temple University and the title of Temple University's department is the Department of African-American Studies. However, you know about folks who come out of Temple, a lot of them have this Afrocentric and African-centered orientation. So we have to engage Africa and the African diaspora as they relate to one another. But there's a lot of departments out there that when they call themselves African-American or Afro-American studies, the connection to the diaspora is lost. Are things moving into that direction outside of America and also in, in Africa? I think so. I mean, that, that's the nature of the work that I do. That's the nature of the work that my colleagues try to do. Like, you know, when we argue that we come from an African-centered perspective, yeah. we're saying that the very basic assumptions that we utilize develop from traditional African thought that might manifest itself amongst the Akan, that might manifest itself amongst the Yoruba, but can also be found within the Caribbean, can also be found within South America, can also be found any place where African people are at. But that's, that's a group of scholars. I don't know, and I would not say that all scholars within Africana studies are trying to do that. However, they should be because it's fundamental to understanding our condition as a, as a people of African descent. We are connected because we are, we're African. And whether our lineage starts on the continent or whether our lineage starts on the diaspora, its oldest point of origin is Africa. But, you know, I mean, this right here makes me make that connection to ADO, ADOS. And I know that we were going to talk about it, but The arguments that come from ADOS and the FBA folks are like black people in the United States are separate and distinct from all these other Africans throughout the world. And therefore, we're going to have language and sentiments that are anti-immigrant. We're going to have language and sentiments that are not about pan-African connection and, and, and unity. And that whole thinking is a contradiction to the years and years and years of political work, uh, scholarship, mm-hmm. and activism that has fundamentally been about connecting African people in the diaspora. You look at Garvey, you look at Kwame Ture, you, you, like we, we can go on. All these people came from outside of the United States, then came into the United States, and then united Africans 
in the United States, but Africans throughout the world. But yet and still, you know, yeah. I mean, I have I have my whole position on on ADOS and them FBA folks, and I I just think that it's just a conservative move within a segment of of, of Black America that buys into the whole notion of American exceptionalism. I am actually still trying to understand them. I mean, the motive, the rationale behind it. Because those two don't actually are not antagonistic, right? When it comes to citizenship and reparation, I get that point. But differentiating the people, that's, that's more fundamental. That's the essence of who we are. I think I first heard about them maybe two years ago. And I just, you know, I think I, I think I listened to a few episodes of y- Yvette Carnell's um, podcast or, or thing that she's got on YouTube. Yeah. And I was like, it's whatever. I'm not trying to deal with it. Yeah. And then I let it go. But then it had another iteration. And now you have, I think, what's his name? Tariq Nasheed, who has this other, like, it's a splinter from it, which is known as like fundamental Black Americans or something like that. I tend to believe most of our problems came outside of this whole racial war and stuff, the miseducation of Black people. These are people who are, who are well-educated, who know about their background, who know about this, this history of us in the world. And uh, yeah, but quite baffling. I think that it's a particular type of education and it's a political education and it is an ideological education that is at odds with the history and the experiences of African people in America and throughout the diaspora. So it's, it's, I mean, it's miseducation from the perspective of a pan-African perspective, but it is like ideological and political education for folks who buy into American exceptionalism. Cause that's, that's the only thing that I hear in there. I hear a, a black form of American exceptionalism. That actually brings me back to Africana studies. Do you see in that the limitations that you're talking about people of today's generation and who have this opportunity to learn, but seems to me Africana studies is not that accessible. If Africana studies is born in the diaspora and specifically within the United States, that's where the majority of work is done. Now, there is a brother who's in the UK, I think is Kahindi Andrews. He's doing some stuff around black studies in the UK. So th- there's that connection. But I think when you deal with Africana studies outside of the United States, you have people who are learning about Africa and the diaspora from a traditional academic discipline, whether it's history, whether it's you know anthropology, sociology, political science, so forth and so on. And what Africana studies does is it takes all of those academic disciplines but utilizes them from the perspective of African people. So Africana studies takes place just not under that name. For instance, I love Diop. So Sheikh Anta Diop was doing Africana studies before Africana studies was there. So I think that even though we may not see the name, if we see people who are studying people of African descent are doing it from their perspective, and are trying to gain that knowledge in order to transform African people, it's Africana studies. I see. Now, today here in the U.S., what, are, what do you think are the challenges? Because um, the way I understand it, it's available in college. You go to college to learn about Africana studies. So, number one, as you stated, the fact that Africana studies is found 
primarily at the collegiate level is the number one problem, all right? There are certain school districts within the United States. Philadelphia has a, 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 a black studies curriculum. The, the, the state of Florida supposedly has a black studies curriculum. In New Jersey, they have a Amistad project, which is about infusing Africana studies within the, the, the K through 12 education system. And there may be some other places where you have this infusion, but the fact that it is not readily available to students from K through 12, you know, is the number one problem. Now, when you move to the next level, we deal with, all right, well, if we have Africana studies in institutions of higher education, are they being properly supported? Are they being properly funded? Do they have proper and adequate staff? So forth and so on. That's the next level. The third level is about, do we actually have sufficient graduate programs that are producing the next generation of Africana studies scholars? So for me, those are three issues that are impacting Africana studies. Number one, the fact that you have to wait to get to college to get this information. Number two, in these departments, are they always supported? So I know of departments, <clears throat> I know of academic units. I'm not going to call them a department because, you know, within Africana studies and within higher education, we know that there are differences between an academic department versus an academic program. An academic program has no power. They can't hire, they can't fire. They, they all their power comes from the dean or a provost, someone outside of that actual unit of scholars. An, ac an academic department, on the other hand, has the ability to hire, fire, determine curriculum, so forth and so on. So I know of academic programs where they're just hanging on based upon having a general education requirement that requires students to take a class on race. So their whole academic program is nothing but a racism class. You don't build an academic area on one one, one class or, or maybe three to four or five classes, you don't do that. So those departments, programs, excuse me, are not getting the support that they need. And, th and then we have to also look at, you know, like I said before, graduate programs. There's, for me, training in Africana studies is ideological and it is political. And therefore, those who come into the field need to have that grounding. You know, Nathan Hare, you know, the father of Black studies was, was, was very clear that like, you know, the work that we're trying to do is about education, it's about liberation. If you just think that you want to be in Africana studies to teach about black folks because you like black people, this ain't the place to be because we're trying to change the conditions that we're in. I see more and more people advocating for homeschooling. And do you see that as a solution or what other solutions you think we need to make it more accessible? So I'm, I'm an av advocate for independent, schools, that is independent black institutions. There's actually an organization known as the Council for Independent Black Institutions, and I'm support, I am support the work that they do. These are separate schools for black people that are African-centered in orientation, that are ideologically, politically connected to using the African experience to teach children from K to 12. There are schools that exist in D.C. There's the Nation House. There's other schools that are supplemental schools, but some are also independent schools within the United States, but there's not a lot of them. So I'm an advocate for that before we think about, oh, we're going to have a charter school as an option, or we're going to do homeschooling as an option. 
I think that homeschooling is fine, but education is a communal experience and it needs to be more than just a small group of people trying to learn. You need to be in communication with other folks. And that's the beauty of having a classroom with 20 to 25 students and you're talking about a topic because you get people from a variety of different experiences and able to give their insight. And as they give their insight, it might actually make a connection for somebody who's in that space. And I'm an advocate for independent schools. I believe that charter schools are not the answer. And I think a last resort would be something like a, a, a homeschooling. But I'll add this. I do also believe in supplemental education settings. And supplemental education settings are when you have a night school and or a Saturday school. So you send your child to the public schools, but two days a week in the evening, they have the, the cultural supplement to, you know, contextualize all the craziness that they're learning in, in the day, or they have a Saturday school. So those are options for me if independent schools aren't going to be the answer. Just one last question on that, actually, since because this has a political component, where is the support, say, in Washington, in Congress? Is there a support in there that's pushing for more funding for Black studies? Not that I know of. At the collegiate level, there are grants that are accessible to universities to apply for, to receive, but I'm not aware of K-12 through funding for Black studies. But... I would argue that this is something that the Congressional Black Caucus should be trying to pick up. Like, you know, if, 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 if we realize the importance of Africana Studies, then we should be thinking about how do we fund Africana Studies units within K-12 education. Outside of Black students, this is just an assumption. We have more Black people interested in the studies. Today, with what's going on, Black Lives Matter, do you see an uptick and interest from non-Black people? I'll be very honest with you. I've taught at a variety of schools between York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. I have had, in my 20 years of teaching, a solid amount of non-Black students in my Black Studies classes who are interested in the material. Now, some of them would take multiple classes and decide to major in, in, in Black Studies or Africana Studies. And some of them would just take one or two classes and maybe decide to minor in it. Or maybe they would just take one class. Like, you know, so I think that there is an interest amongst a certain segment of the white population and the non-black people of color folks who are interested in what we are, we're, we're doing in Africana studies. Because the, the, this is the deal. The deal is that like Africana studies, the arguments and the ideas can be applicable to other marginalized populations. In the sense, if you see how we're trying to do this within this setting, you then might be able to apply it to your experience if you're Latino, if you're Asian, if you're indigenous. Because why? Because we're trying to understand communities and people from their perspective in order to transform their conditions. So we have a model in Black Studies I mean, the same model in Black studies influenced women's studies, influenced gender studies, queer studies, all those academic disciplines. So it's obviously going to impact students who are in these institutions who are like, I don't want to learn about these dead white folks. I want to learn about somebody else. 
And maybe if I learn about these people, it might give me insight to who I am and who my people are. So I don't think that Black Studies is limited to primarily Black folks. I'm asking this because of the, the Afrocentric nature of it. Going back and forth in my head because I think of classroom experiences that I've had with non-Black students who were truly invested in the material. And it made me like rethink, you know, whether or not these white folks really want to do this work. But then I also think of semesters when I've had students who were white and they were the most resistant to everything that, that I was talking about. So it's like, you know, you got to balance it out. There, there, there's, there's some non-Black people who value what we're, what we're doing, but there's also those, those folks who come in these spaces to be combative, to be disruptive, and you know to try to prove every 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 everything that you say wrong yeah because i can see how you can become personal <laughs> to some mm-hmm. people yeah um, man it's just, it's it's, yeah. It's, it's it's a crazy crazy thing but like i enjoy teaching and i like welcome that i just get bothered when like there's disrespect for my other students in the class how does the concept of people of color fit mm. into when you teach is that something that's discussed well, I, I use the phrase people of color. I, I think that it is useful. The way that I frame race and racism within the United States, but also within the world at large, it is the relationship between European people and everyone else. And when you talk about everyone else, we're talking about people of color. Now, obviously, amongst people of color, you have a variety of different folks. And the variety of different people who are in there may not agree ideologically and politically on every single issue. But the number one thing that we must agree on is that Europeans have attempted to terrorize and destroy us. Whether we look in Africa, whether we look throughout Central and South America, whether we look all throughout Asia, Europeans have left their little cold place and gone around, planted flags, and wiped out people. So when I use the term people of color, I'm using it in that collective sense of the term. You know, I know that there are issues with people with, with the phrase people of color because people make the statement, oh, well, when you throw all these non-white people together, you water down the specific experiences of African people, of Native American people, of the variety of Chinese, Asian Indian people, so forth and so on. Like you water those experiences down. And I understand that. But I think that given the nature of the, the war that we are in, is Europeans are trying to wipe out people who aren't European. And if you don't see that and you don't recognize that, then, you know, we, 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 we end up fighting one another as opposed to dealing with, you know, our oppressor. My problem with it is that makes the European standard color. I like to see myself as more like a central point and then everything else vis-a-vis me. I, I, I get it. I think there's another phrase that, 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 that's used and that's non-white people. And again, you know, I have issue with, I have issue with that because it, you know, it's centering white folks. I, I think that there's a way that we can talk about people of color as marginalized people because we are marginalized in the context of white supremacy. I just try to think of and utilize language that connects us and also makes it clear that there is a separation between who we are as 
people who are not white and don't benefit from white skin privilege and don't benefit from all the things that come with being white in a society based on white supremacy. But I do understand the critique. Pan-Africanism. What is it? To understand Pan-Africanism, there's two ways for us to think about this. It's this idea, this ideology, and then there's also a movement for the unification of Africa and Africa and the countries in, in Africa. So those two ideas or those two approaches to Pan-Africanism help me understand what it is. So the initial idea of Pan-Africanism develops as Africans in the diaspora see their condition in relation to the continent of Africa. And therefore you have Henry Sylvester Williams, you have you know, Du Bois, so forth and so on, holding these Pan-African conferences and trying to think about what's their relationship to the continent of Africa. But these independence movements come along. This is when we get this movement for Pan-African unity on the continent between uh, all these African countries. So you have these two components. I don't think that they're separate, but I do think that in the diaspora, there's a lot of focus on this idea of the, the, the Pan-African idea of a collective community of African people. And I think on the continent, you have more discussions around how do we unify as a continent in relation to these people who are outside of us that are trying to exploit us. What do you think made America more of a fertile ground? Because we can see people from the Caribbean where the movement in a way grows here, actually, not in the mm. continent, not in other parts of the world. Why America? It could be a variety of factors. It could be experiences within the United States that are distinct from experiences around issues of race and culture found within the Caribbean, found within Europe, found within other places within yeah. the diaspora. Given the, the type of racial violence that Black folks in the United States experienced, in a society which totally told them that you did not belong here, you weren't a part of this, you then had to figure out what you were connected to and who you could belong to. And from that, we get this, these ideas of our connection to Africa. And as you get these ideas of your connection to Africa, you then move into this notion of Pan-Africanism. That's one way that you know you can think through, through that, but I'm pretty sure that there's other explanations but for me that resonates and it makes the 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 most sense yeah i'm just so impressed by marcus gabby's movement because it was so early if it had happened in the 60s fine the environment was fertile for that but that was so early and that makes it so much more impressive we have a number of movements prior to garvey and right after garvey that are you know our connection in relation to the, the, the continent of Africa. But Garvey's movement is so powerful because he comes from the diaspora, comes into the United States, initially coming to the United States to connect with Booker T. Washington. But, you know, he then explains and develops and is able to get these ideas out that speak to the conditions of black folks in the United States, but at the same rate, because he's coming from the Caribbean and has moved throughout South America, like he's making connections and wherever he goes, 
he's sharing his ideas. And truthfully, I don't think that people even move like that these days. You know, people are coming directly to the United States as opposed to moving through different spaces and having an idea and trying to share and trying to motivate and move people. I think also, given the time period, given the level of racial violence and lynching within the United States, it was right for something like this to happen because these movements are pretty much saying, look at your experience here. And if you look at your experience here, why would you want to be here? How can you make a connection? And I'd argue that those same arguments could be made today, but people wouldn't buy it because people still have some hope or faith in America as an answer to the conditions of black people. And, you know, we have to look at the signs. If you could be a black man breaking up a fight and a cop shoot you seven times in the back and you paralyzed from the waist down now, do people really want you here? Or if they do want you here, they only want you here in a certain capacity. And if that capacity doesn't fit with who you are as a human being and who your people have been, you need to think about what are the options. Is Pan-Africanism working? Like, are the goals even clear to everybody? I think the fact that ADOS and FBA are around, that tells us that there's some holes in the work that has been done and that needs to be done around trying to get Africans in the diaspora to realize their relationship and their connection to, to other African people. So I can't answer the question if it's working as much as I can tell you that we have enough evidence to tell us that there's more work that needs to be done. But again, you know, for me, this goes back to the earlier questions that we had around African studies and education. If people are being taught who they are, and if they're taught who they are in relation to the United States and to the relation to the continent, Pan-Africanism will be working. It will be working better. You know, John Henry Clark, famous African-American um, scholar, said the only difference that separates a Jamaican from a Trinidadian, from a Black person in North Carolina, a Black person in Georgia, is a boat stop. A boat stop. We need to be concerned with where the boat started. And that boat started in West Africa and dropped African people all throughout this hemisphere. And therefore, if you recognize that, we do not need to be concerned with this point. We need to be concerned with our point of departure. And that then allows for us to think about Pan-Africanism. It allows for us to think about our connection to the continent and our support for the continent. So I'm a member of the Black Alliance for, for, for Peace. And, you know, we have our U.S. out of Africa cam campaign, which is about dealing with and, and critically engaging Africom within the on, on the continent. And the idea here is that you have Africans in the diaspora who are concerned with the United States Africom all throughout the continent. That shows me that Pan-Africanism is important, valued, and it's working as you have organizers and a variety of organizations trying to deal with the spread of white supremacy and the spread of, you know, problematic war thinking um, from the United States. So I think that there's some aspects that are working, but I do believe that more work needs to be done. And I think the evidence that more work needs to be done 
goes back to ADOS, FBA, and all of these other folks. Yeah, I was going to say, somebody tell what uh, Mr. Clark said <laughs> to ADOS. They're they not trying to hear it because we've been saying it. They, they, they are not trying to hear what, what Dr. Clark had to, had to say. But again, they are purposefully navigating through certain waters in order to avoid their connections to Africa and our connection as African people. It's purposeful. It's ideological and political. For this thing to work, you probably need some sort of standard, a global standard when it comes to black studies. Because once you educate it, or at least once you know who you are, that's what feeds this Pan-African connection. And I think that's, a, that's something we are missing, globally speaking. Say for, some, for a kid in Nigeria compared to a kid in Kingston, Jamaica. I, I think that that's connected to the K through 12 educational experience. And because I'm aware of programs at a variety of colleges that are about taking Africana study students to Ghana, to Nigeria, to Senegal, to South Africa. And it's about making that connection. But again, that happens when they're in college. There's a program out of DC that I am aware of that does take children that are like in high school age. But I think those types of experiences are important. But another point that I hear you making is that it's not just about African-Americans traveling to the continent, but it's also about folks from the continent coming to the United States as it relates to these educational experiences. It needs to be both ways. And if it's multi-directional, then, you know, you can understand what are the connections that are made. I mean, like my, when I was in graduate school, I had a, my closest, one of my closest friends in, in graduate school, oh, Eddie, who's from Cote d'Ivoire. And when he came, finished his PhD in African-American studies, he understood the connections between Africans on the continent and the, and the diaspora. And my communication with him, my friendship with him made me understand the relationship between Africans in the diaspora and Africans on the continent. But it was that personal interaction that made that connection. And that same type of personal interaction is necessary for younger folks. So it's just not reading something in a book and trying to make connections, but you actually know someone and you can compare stories and narratives and experiences. That's why travel matters, I guess. Yes. I mean, my experience here has opened my eyes, definitely. I want to ask about a quote you made in uh, Whispering Out Loud, Voices of Africana. You say, most discussions of Sheikh Antadiop limit his scholarly contributions to his groundbreaking work on the African origin of ancient Egyptian civilization. What else do we need to know about Sheikh Anta? To the African origin of civilization, Diop provides for us what has been called the two-cradle theory. And that two-cradle theory is something that I've spent a considerable amount of time of um, researching and writing around. This idea argues that there are two cradles of civilization, and these cradles are different from a variety of different geographical and eventually philosophical and psychological modes of, of existence. This idea is applied to ancient Egypt because this idea allows for us to see matriarchy within ancient Kemetic civilization. 
this idea allows us to see a, a unique spiritual system with an ancient um, comedic civilization. This also explains, you know, the reliance on agriculture with an ancient Egyptian civilization. So a lot of the ideas that we get from Diop concentrate on his, the, like I said, the groundbreaking work on Egypt. But the yeah. thing is that that two cradle theory is what allowed for him and allowed for us to see those groundbreaking contributions. So my argument is that we should be concerned with the two cradle theory. Because if we understand the two cradle theory, we understand Diop more than just ancient Egypt. And the reason why we love ancient Egypt is because, you know, Diop and Obinga are like laying out how African people are the foundation of civilization, which is an important argument. I'm not trying to deny that. But what I am trying to say is that Diop had some other ideas and we should understand Diop in, its, in, in, in his totality as opposed to just saying Diop Kemet. I read many of his books, actually. But yeah, if you ask me, that's where I would start, ancient Egypt. When you read the, the, his last English translated piece, Civilization of Barbarism, in Civilization of Barbarism, he deals with the origins of humanity. He deals with, obviously, the, the whitewashing of comedic history. But he also deals with the notion of cultural identity. He deals with his, he, he has all of his work around linguistics. He has the, the work around etymological origins of, of words and concepts that are found within Europe that actually have a African origin. So there's so much to Diop. I can't limit him just to Kemet. And I would argue that we can use his work on Kemet to show everything else that he's done. And if we do that, then we're like showing Diop in, in his totality. The, the, my, my issue is that like, only know of Kemet, only know of Diop in relation to Kemet. Diop was clearly a Pan-Africanist. Diop was clearly a political activist. Diop was a scientist. He was so much, and he was able to prove that the Egyptians were black. Yes. Now that brings me up actually back to to Eras, which is that the theory just doesn't hold. What of people in Liberia? What of old? A slave descendant who moved back to Africa. They don't make sense to me, so I can't even think through what is the logic behind what 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 they're doing. Again, for me, it's connected to American exceptionalism. It's they're connected to the benefits that they believe come with being connected to America. It's just like people who are stuck on the name African American. Like, you have to have that American component because God forbid you're African. God forbid that you're a new African. God forbid that you're a person of African descent. You know, as much as we have Pan-African elements in the diaspora, as much as we have Africana studies within the diaspora, we still have segments of the Black population within the United States who have issue with acknowledging that they're African and acknowledging their relationship to Africa. And if you have those issues, ADOS makes perfect sense. It fits right in. If you have an educational institution that doesn't tell you who you are and then makes it seem as if you're separate from your brothers and sisters on the continent and throughout the diaspora, ADOS makes sense. There is the context for this type of thinking to flourish. And, you know, it, it means that we have work to do. As yeah. scholars within African studies have work to do. When I'm in the classroom 
and the student brings up ADOS as a solution option as a perspective, we need to sit down and kind of talk through why do you believe this and how did you come to these conclusions? And what do you know about Yvette Carnell? What do you know about her funding? What do you know about her connections to, to, to other people? Because when you begin to look and make the connections, it becomes very clear that she's not about African people. She might just be about herself. The miseducation is everywhere. And I see it actually on, on all sides, even on online forums where I see these shocking positions when people talk about issues between Africans and African-Americans. We have conflicts between folks on the continent in relation to, 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 to folks in the, in the diaspora. When you come into the diaspora, you have conflicts between a Jamaican versus a Haitian versus, you know, and it, but again, that whole, the, the very origin of those, of, the, of that conflict is related to what Dr. Clark had said. It has the, the fact that you would drop someplace and you think that because you were dropped there, that defines who you are, as opposed to where you were picked up from, that defines who you are. But it's, it's just part of the work that, that, that's necessary. It's part of the work of why conversations like this are important in order to have these types of discussions so that people can begin to think, make connections, and then begin to ask questions. My relationships that I've had with brothers and sisters from the continent has showed me that you might have a negative story about dealing with somebody, but that doesn't speak to, 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 to all folks co coming from the continent into the, into the United States. And we need to deal with our relationships. We need to deal with our connections as opposed to the things that separate us. Because we can find a whole bunch of things that separate us. That's why Job's work is that important. Because mm -hmm. it gives me pride we came from great people. I see another problem on the other side where it gets so romanticized that it becomes really not very rational. People think, I've seen people who think of Pan-Africanism as this, this unity where we are, yes, we are all Africans, but when it comes to, say, citizenship, we are all in one place in Africa. I'm like, no, it's not going to happen. It would be nice. It's not going to happen. You're not going to say everybody, every black person in the world should relocate to, America, I mean, to Africa. That's not how it works. I think the point is to understand what unites us and who we are. And once you know, when, once you know where we come from, it's so powerful that a lot of barriers in front of us that just fall. I, I think that if you know how brain drains take place and you have people pulled out of areas, but if you have other folks in the diaspora that have a skill set that can be used in some, on some place in, in, in the continent, that's where I think that type of relationship is, 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 is best because it's not about you. It's actually about how do I have the skill set that can be used in Ghana, in Nigeria, in Cote d'Ivoire, in Senegal. Mm -hmm. And that's how we need to begin to think um, in this sense. So it's like, you know, you deal, I deal with students all the time who are concerned with working for a Fortune 500 company or working for some other company. It's like, but you have a skill set that can be used in Legos, that can be used in Accra. Yeah. And why are we not thinking about using our skill set to help our people? In the 60s, when African leaders like Kwame Krumah, well-educated abroad, come back home, but there's so much work to do that most of them just concentrate on political. Yeah, I mean, I mean, listen, the political work, 
Because gaining independence is one thing, but maintaining that independence and maintaining that autonomy and really letting the shackles of your colonizers go is a continual process. And that work has to go on. But at the same rate, you got to build a nation. And if you don't build a nation, you are going to continue to be exploited by your former colonizer. And that's what we have when we have these different forms of neocolonialism on the continent. And it's that, it's that continued process. But, but, but for me, Pan-Africanism becomes powerful when you realize that you have other countries on the continent that can support you and that can back you. It can help defend you from your former colonizer. That's what makes Europe, Europe. I mean, there's this, uh, I mean, tribal wars in Europe don't happen. They do happen, right? I mean, 1992, 1994, Rwanda genocide or wars in the Balkans, tribal wars. But Europe has this sort of unity, this, this kinship that allows them to basically resolve things. And that's I, something we don't have as a community, as a people. I think because Europe is powerful, it allows them to make these connections and help one another in a way that people without power can't do. So it's not like there's something special about Europe. The only thing special is that they got power and they are power hungry. And if you got power and you're power hungry, you can make anything work. But in the diaspora, we lack that power. On the continent, we lack that power. And if we don't have that power, we can't make the connections that are needed. And if those connections aren't, need, aren't made, we continue to be exploited. This concept of cultural appropriation, how do you feel about that? This is why I'm asking. My understanding of it was more non-African people embracing African culture, and that's a good thing. If someone is becoming an ambassador for me, I'm happy. Until I heard about this issue between at least one blog where they're talking about African people saying, Africa in the diaspora appropriating their culture. So I'm lost in the debate. Yeah, I mean, listen, I think it, go it goes back to what we've been arguing um, and discussing all along, the importance of the connections of African people, the importance of the cultural ties of African people, the importance of Africana studies. So I think that it's almost impossible for a person of African descent who is in the diaspora to the culture of their ancestors. Like, I, I don't, I don't, to me, that doesn't make any sense. But again, if we are under the assumption that we are not connected as African people and that we are separate, then somebody who is in, in some place on the continent can make the argument that those people over there are taking my culture. Now, so that, that's one level. Another level we need to understand is that when people wear dashikis, wear mug cloth, wear any type of African attire, and they don't know the meaning of it, they don't know the significance of it, they don't know where this stuff originates from, that to me is a problem. That's not cultural appropriation, but that means that your connection to culture is just for show. 
our connection for culture cannot just be for show. It needs to be connected to the, the fact that we have an understanding of who we are. And this is one aspect. So Africans in the diaspora, you know, we are new Africans. And as we're new Africans, we've been pulled from all places within West Africa and created into this group in, in, who's in the diaspora. We don't know exactly if we are from the Ga people. We don't know if we're, you know, if we're Yoruba. We don't know exactly who, but we know that our origins are connected to the continent. So as we try to make sense of our reality, we pull from what's accessible to us. And as we pull from what's accessible to, to us, we need to make sure that we're trying to have some explanation and meaning. And it's just not, I'm going to wear dashiki because it looks nice. No. Right. What's the historical relevance of dashikis as it relates to you being, of Af- uh, you being a person of African descent? My position on it is simple. You own it anyway. It's my thing, so I'm not appropriating it. Exactly. It's ours, you know, and if it's ours, it's a collective ownership. It's very interesting for us to think about individual ownership versus collective ownership, because collective ownership says that we as a people, we as people of Africans, this is this is ours. You know, individual ownership says, well, this is mine, whether it's my ethnic group, my language, and you can't own it. And I think that a collective ownership is very consistent with African philosophical um, uh, positions and traditional African thought. So we're on the same page and we got to get more of our people to be on the same page. Yeah, I think uh, the miseducation is still rampant. If you have a chance to travel, it opens your eyes. If you have a chance to have advanced studies, that opens your eyes. The typical African, there's just so much to, to deal with day to day that it's hard to, to look at the bigger picture. I think that our experience as African descendant people has us dealing with too much. And these questions of identity, these questions of self-knowledge are not given the attention that's necessary. And that leads to some of the problems down the line that we have because we're confused about who we are. And if we're confused about who we are, you know, we're going to be confused about everything. The ancient Egyptians would say that self-knowledge is the basis of all knowledge. And therefore, if you don't know yourself, you can't know anything else. What books would you recommend? What book would you give to an, to an Eidos member? Well, I don't know if I would give, I don't know what book, <laughs> I, I don't know what book I give them. But I can tell you three, I can tell you some books. Yeah. And it might be more than three. But number one, oh. number one book is the Cultural Unity of Black Africa by Diop. To me, that is his most important work. And it gives us a rationale and an explanation for Pan-Africanism as it relates to questions of culture. So that, that's where I would start. There is a book by Marimba Ani entitled Yurugu. She, in this text, analyzes the impact of Eurocentric thinking as it relates to the production of knowledge, as it relates to understanding reality, but she does it from an African-centered perspective. So what she's doing is critiquing and analyzing European people and how they, they think and how they exist in relation to others. This is important because we have to deal with the way in which Europe has gotten into our minds. And we can do that by having an African-centered critique of European. Another a book, no specific title, 
but anything from John Henry Clark would be uh, good to use. I can, I'm easier at dropping scholars and people who you should read as opposed to book titles. So I'll give you four more. After Dr. Clark, Amos Wilson, he was a, a black psychologist. He has a very clear understanding of these questions of identity, these questions of history, and these questions of the politics of history that we really don't deal with. You know, I have another person to, to, to think of as a psychologist also by the name of Linda James Myers. She does really phenomenal work around what's known as optimal psychology. And an optimal psychology is a psychology that's grounded within an African worldview. There's a, a mentor out of um, Howard University. His name is Greg Carr. He's the, 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 the chair of the Afro-American Studies Department. His work is necessary and useful. And he knows so much and covers um, so much. I think that like, you know, picking up anything that he's, he's, he's written or finding something that he's done on YouTube will be, will, will be useful and, and, and helpful. And one last person for, cause I, this is, I, this will be number seven, right? Yes. All right. So sorry. I have so, six now. <laughs> all right. So the seventh person, who is it um, going to be? I'm not going to give you seven because I'm, I feel like I'm going to leave somebody out. But I will book titles. I will give you names. And the last thing I'm going to give you before we get off of this is some organizations. Because there are, there are academic organizations that do work that's connected to, 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 to this. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, no, thanks. I mean, uh, I, f I forgot. I just took notes. The Council of Black Alliance for Peace. Yes, is yes. All right, so, okay. All right, so I'll, okay. I'll give you those groups as well. So the first one is the Association for the Study of Classical African Civilizations. This is okay. an organization that was heavily influenced by uh, Diop, heavily influenced by um, Theophilo Benga, but they do wonderful work. They're based on a study group model. They have chapters all throughout the, the United States. Beautiful work that they do. I also mentioned the African Heritage Studies Association. Extremely long history that, you know, does good work as well in trying to understand us as African people from an African-centered um, perspective. There's a, the National Council for Black Studies, which also does similar type work. So those are just organizations that try to do this. As far as political organizations, I'm a member of the Malcolm X grassroots movement, and they have uh, a, a clear perspective and a clear ideological position as it relates to us as new Africans in the United States and our relationship to, to, to this nation. I also mentioned previously the Black Alliance for Peace, but their uh, U.S. out of Africa campaign is extremely strong and it's reflective of, like I said, that Pan-African connection, because we clearly see that it's not in the interest of Africans in the diaspora to allow the U.S. military complex to wreak havoc on our brothers and sisters on the continent. The need to learn, to understand history, even not even Africana studies as a discipline, the history of Egypt, history of actual slavery, actual numbers, just to know. I think that would breed, I guess that, that would feed into actual Pan-Africanism. Because once you know, you have something to, to claim or reclaim. 
Yeah, I mean, once you know, you you have action to do. But the reason why people don't do that much is because they don't know the details of, of what yeah. the heck is going on. Like if you if you sat and looked at the statistics on police killings of black folks, you would be motivated to do something because you would see the data there and you'd be like, this doesn't make any sense. But instead, we get this stuff that comes up on the news every once in a while and we get bothered and we react to these events. But let's look at the complete data. And when you begin to look at the complete data, it becomes clear. So as I said before, I remember the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement and you know they put out a report a few years ago and the, the report outlines the impact on police violence in the black community. And we need to, to deal with the report is entitled Operation Ghetto Storm and in Operation Ghetto Storm, they lay out the extrajudicial killings of black people. And the report exposes that every 28 hours, someone inside the United States, employed or protected by the US government, kills a black child, woman, or man. And like this data, when we have that data, that then allows us to act in ways that are more than just reaction. And a lot of the stuff that takes place is reaction. And we need to be proactive. With knowledge, you, are, you can be proactive. Without knowledge, you are primarily going to be reactive. Yeah. Wow. Dr. Carroll, thank you so much. That's all for today. But you can listen to more episodes at Unmuted.Africa. Or you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Don't forget to subscribe and like us on Facebook.